Spring. After all that, we're not done yet. No, no, we're not. There's still more. There is still more. And we hope there's even more for some of you guys to join us for lunch afterwards. I know that was probably announced, but we have a little new person lunch. Uh, And the reason we do that is because God has a whole lot more for you than just attending a service in a building on a Sunday morning. That's, that's really not what God calls church. This is just a building where the church, the family, the people of God meet together. So these lunches give us a chance to meet you and for you to meet some of us and our small group leaders and the pastors. And so we hope that you have a moment that you can come eat lunch with us upstairs afterwards. Uh, one of the things that uh, I don't know if it got highlighted from the bulletin, but this is next week, is the School of the Word will start up again. And there will be a teaching in the School of the Word through the book of Philemon. And, uh, you know, obviously everything we do when we open the Bible up, we, we realize the Bible contains truth. It's not formatted. You know, Philemon doesn't, doesn't highlight what it's about. It just says Philemon. Uh, but there would be aspects that, as, as you have lived relationally with people, you have encountered issues of brokenness in that relationship, offense in that relationship, the need to work toward making that work in the future. How do you do that? Well, you can learn that from Philemon. And so don't ever think the Bible's not practical. It's not just living right where you're living. It, it very much is living where you're living. So uh, come devote a few weeks to the study of Philemon. I think you'll learn some great things. Appreciate that book a whole lot more. That's 845 uh, on Sunday mornings beginning next week. Well, this morning, if you guys are regulars here, you know we've been studying through a little series about learning how to be happy. Uh, and we've taken a break from that today. I'm going to take us back into the book of Acts. And many of you guys will remember, we've been studying through the book of Acts. That's what we do. On Sunday mornings, we do just go through passages in the Bible, realizing that God recorded this to have an impact on the way in which we're living our lives and what we believe today. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. This is the book that takes place after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. This is, this is the impact that his life and his death had on people. What did they do after Jesus Christ came and lived his life and, and died and was buried and was raised again. Uh, what, what happened to people? Well, I know this one, I've titled this one, sounds like a joke, but uh, to be a good Athens, city of Athens joke. So did you hear the one about the apostle, the Jew, the heathen, and the atheist? <laughs> well, that's what you're going to learn about today uh, as we look in this passage. But let me ask you this question before we get into the passage. How does the Bible speak about your God, your God, right? The Bible has got a lot to say about a lot of things, but how does it speak about your God? And I say your God because, you know, we're all designer people, right? We design things around our ideas. Certain things make sense to us. Therefore, those are the ideas we hold on to. So there's a sense in which all of us are in this room with a little bit of a personal invention of God, which can be a real challenge and a real problem. Actually, I've recently been reading a book called who made God. And the subtitle is searching for a theory of everything. And in reality, we're all searching for a theory of everything, right? We want to know about life. We want to know what makes it work. We want to know where we came from. We want to chart a course into the future. How do we live our lives? We're we're looking for an explanation of everything. And invariably, that explanation is going to involve God. And, and for most of us here in this room, if you look statistically, I looked up this recently, the World Factbook in 2010 said if you covered the globe and looked for theism, people believing in God, you'd find 98% of people believe in some kind of a God over us. Only 2% of the world population is atheist. That's a little higher in America, but two other surveys hold it right at about 2%. Gallup poll did a poll in 2008, said it could be as high as uh, 6%. But more than likely, about 92 to 94% chance that you believe in God. 
Now here's the question. What do you believe about the God that you believe in? Because not everybody holds the same beliefs. And why do you believe it? Right, there's an interesting book. I love the title of this book. R.C. Sproul wrote a book a number of years ago called The Consequences of Ideas. You and I live in ideas and ideas have consequences. He said this about how we think. He said, most ideas that shape our lives are accepted, at least initially, somewhat uncritically. We do not create a world or environment from scratch and then live in it. Rather, we step into a world and culture that already exists and we learn to interact with it. And if you think about the ideas that have shaped your life, the values that you hold, some of the views that you have about God, you probably inherited quite a bit of that. They were ideas that existed. They existed in people's lives that you knew, people that you respected, your family. And they passed on those ideas and perhaps you just accepted them uncritically. You didn't stop and say, okay, well, I hear you saying that, but, but why, why would I believe that? And I hear you say this about God, but why would I believe that? And so what ends up happening is you start hearing people, different people have different ideas about who God is. And almost it's acceptable for there to be a bunch of different ideas about who God is. And they contradict each other. They don't get along with one another. And we just learn to accept that. But, but really, is that, is that accurate? If there is a God who exists... Is he knowable? Does he have a definition? Is he a certain way at all? Right, Jesus asked his disciples a question one day when he was still here on the earth. He says, who do men say that I am? Right, there's always been opinions about Jesus. But this is quite an interesting quote I've put in your outline to start this. This is from a blog from a man named Kevin DeYoung. Kevin has the gift of sarcasm, so I tend to enjoy what he writes. He says, who do you say that I am? Since the question is doubly crucial in our day because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. Almost no one is as popular in this country as Jesus. Hardly anyone would dare to say a bad word about him. Just look at what a super fly friendly dude he is over there. You see that picture of Jesus? <laughs> but how many people know the real Jesus? Now, you might find yourself in this list, right? There's a lot of versions of Jesus out there. Let's, let's get educated here. There's the Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges. He's for family values and owning firearms. <laughs> There's the Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus <laughs> who drinks fair trade coffee. Now you got to go to Starbucks to understand what that really means. <laughs> That's significant. Drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. <laughs> There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what. Well, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps the athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we could feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus who is meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks very German. (laughs) Uh, There's hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. (laughs) Uh, There's spirituality Jesus, who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within and listening to ambiguously spiritual musical. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. Probably provides wind beneath your wings and a few of those things too. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you 
and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. (laughs) Uh, There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. Now, if we're all honest, there's a little bit of us in one of those places or two of those places, right? See, because, you know, you got some people who just, they got no conscience about burning down every forest on the planet. And you got some people in the room who think that's terrible. And somehow we pull Jesus into that conversation, right? We're a certain way about the environment. We're a certain way about caring for something. And next thing you know, we want to impose the way we are on the way God is. You ever want to figure out why there's so many different versions of God? Because that's what we do. But guess what? We're not the first people to do this. It's not like you have to come to America to find this stuff. No, actually, in our passage today, we're going we're gonna to visit Athens, Greece in 50 AD. And we're going to find out we're not the first people to invent ideas and definitions for God. That's what Paul walked into. Paul's about to walk into the city of Athens. And he's going to experience the life and the culture there. And Athens was a very interesting city. If you, if you follow history at all, you know Athens was a pretty interesting place. Athens was kind of a university city. You know, if you go to Baton Rouge, you know, LSU is everything up there, right? Uh, if, you, if you came to Athens, Athens was a university city. Now, university is an interesting word. We get unity and diversity put together. This is what a university is trying to do. It's trying to bring an explanation to the diversity of the universe. So that's where we get this concept of a university. And Athens has got some pretty impressive uh, professors on the roll. You get guys like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, uh, Epicurus. These were all teachers in the school of thinking there in Athens. And so here you are, let's say you're a typical Athenian, you're, you're living life, minding your own business in Athens, Greece in 50 AD. You live amongst a world of ideas. There's different religious expressions in your city, a variety of them. And people are doing their religious thing, minding their business, thinking through a lot of ideas about life and God and who God is. And strolling into your city comes this guy named the Apostle Paul. And he's got something to say to your city. And he's going to have something to say to you. Now, there's a wide variety of folks here. So as we read through this passage here, I want you to pay attention to two things especially. One is the audience of the people who are listening to the Apostle Paul. And the second is the argument of the Apostle Paul, right? Because let's establish this. Here we are, 2014 AD, and and we're putting our foot in the pool of Christianity to say, what what is this Christianity thing about? Well, we're about to, to read about the Apostle Paul, a person from the first century that today is Sunday, Many, many people are still talking about this man. Many people are still quoting this man. All of us could easily agree this is a very significant historic human being. He is the loudest spokesperson for Christianity in the scriptures in the New Testament. Now, I say that because all of us come to this morning with some ideas about Christianity. We've got arguments about Christianity. Well, Paul's got arguments about Christianity. Right? When we leave here today, whose arguments do we really want to walk away with? Mine? I'm from River Ridge. All right? You know where that is? It used to not have a name. Let's just call it Harahan because that's what I grew up around. It's not, not a big giant place. It's not Athens. I'm not the Apostle Paul. But I want to hear what this man said because he interacted with people and he tried to give them an understanding of what Christianity was. And it might inform us in terms of how do we hold our understanding of what is Christianity? And when we interact with people, what should we sound like? Because I think he's got it right. So let's read here and let's listen to Paul's argument, but just pay attention to his audience as well. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, 
His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That obviously doesn't sound like a compliment, right? It's the, the word there actually means like a seed picker. Now, in modern vernacular, this would be a guy, uh, the guy under the bridge with all the cans in the shopping basket. He's picking up aluminum cans. That's what he just said about Paul. Well, you're a seed picker, aluminum can picker-upper, Paul. Who are you anyway? What's this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Well, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He needs to clarify this because some of the ideas about who God is that are being imposed upon Starbucks Jesus is he's, he's a stone image. He's a golden image. He's an image that looks a certain way. And so they've got some ideas in place about God. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, we know that this, these scriptures are written, protected, preserved by you for us. Because, Lord, as we've already said, we walk into this room already having some ideas about who we think you are. And yet you have written these things down so that we could know who you are. And so, Lord, help us today. You who wrote these scriptures, open our hearts and our minds to receive from them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just look quickly here at at Paul's audience. It's an interesting gathering of folks. There's quite a bit of idolatry. It's the first thing Paul bumps into. He shows up in Athens, verse 16. And it talks about his spirit was provoked. Remember, Peter preached on this several weeks ago. His spirit was provoked within him because he looked out and he just saw idols everywhere. There was a, a historian, I think his name was Pausanias, who wrote about the city of Athens. And this is, this is legit. This is not an exaggeration. He actually said for every human being in Athens, there were three idols. Three to one. And there were about 10,000 people living in Athens. So you got 30,000 idols. It was not hard for Paul to locate idolatry around him. Now, what is idolatry? This is a very important word. 
It, it's, it's the number one thing God takes issue with. And there's all kinds of offensive behavior out there, isn't there? But there's one thing to God more offensive than anything else. It's idolatry. Because at the heart of idolatry is simply when human beings invent something to take the place of God. And well, why do people invent things? I mean, why does any gadget you got going on in your house get invented? People invent things because they, they have a need for something. Well, then why do people invent idols? Well, because they have a need for something. And so if you were visited these idols, you would find that they were inventing idols that took the place of God meeting their need. That's why it's so offensive to God that we have ever have idols in our lives. It's we begin to look to those things to meet our need in the way in which God wanted to meet our need. And so, you know, back, back here, they're, they're inventing idols to help them with provision. They needed provision in their lives. You know, they needed their crops to produce a harvest. So they would invent agricultural gods. And so many of the Greek and Roman gods were agricultural gods during that time. They figured out that uh, they needed to reproduce. I mean, there was a great deal of need for, for them to have children. This was an economic factor, not just to, hey, we just love to have a big family. Uh, there was an economy in having children. And so they would produce children and have business as a result of their children would, would be helping them in the, in the world. So they, they needed they didn't reproductive help. So you have all kinds of, you have a lot of fertility gods. Okay, there's a bunch of reasons why you have a lot of fertility gods. But that, you know, having children was one of them. So you had Venus and Diana were gods that they had invented because they were of a concern for them being fertile. There were war gods. They figured out pretty soon, somebody's coming to take our stuff. Somebody's going to come against us and harm us. So we're going to need protection. So rather than look to the God who created them for protection, they created gods. Uh, Ares was a god of war. The Areopagus sits on top of a hill named in honor of the god Ares. It's also called Mars Hill because that's the Roman version of Ares is, is Mars. And he was a god of war. So we invent idols because we need something. But we invent them to take the place of God. <clears throat> Listen, not, you know, bring this into America. You're not going to find these statues and these kinds of names. But, but material possessions, money takes up a place like that for us, doesn't it? You know, when we freak out when our money is not where it needs to be. Because we, we draw security from what money will provide for us. So money becomes an idol, takes the place of God. Rather than looking to God to provide for us, we're looking for money to provide for us, right? So idolatry still lives on today. But these idols were interesting in that they really weren't, they weren't, they weren't like God in Scripture. And that's why Paul clarifies who this God is. They were, they were a little bit more like superheroes, right? They, they were gods that had needs. They needed somebody to wait on them. They needed each other to procreate. They needed protection from one another. So they, you know, they're a little bit more like Superman than they were like the God of the Bible. They could do amazing stuff in certain categories, but they had need for people to, to wait on them and care for their needs. They had people that, that bring them certain special types of food. That's why Paul says, God, the God of the Bible doesn't need any of that. The unknown God that you seek to worship, he's not like the gods you've invented. He's different than that, which is an important feature of God. Let me just get to the rest of this audience here. You had, you had Jews and devout people. He sees the idolatry, verse 16, verse 17. He says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. Now this one gets a little more, more mileage for us. Paul shows up in Athens. He's got an agenda. He's got something to say to people. He reasons with the idolaters, and then he goes and shows up in church. The synagogue was the place where the religious people met. So I I find that even more interesting for us today. Because Paul shows up to make an adjustment. He's, He's seeking to adjust people in what he's presenting to them. And where does he go? He goes to the synagogues. He goes amongst the religious people in his day. You see, a lot of us, when we get religious... We, we, we think we got it. We think we got this God thing down right. See, because, you know, I, listen, dude, I, I grew up going to church. I grew up going to church. But then the apostle Paul could have rolled in town and showed up at my church. And quite honestly, he'd have had something to say to me. 
Because even though I was religious, I needed to hear what he was saying because I didn't understand what he was saying. He was bringing a message I needed to hear. So there's a realm of religion here. You remember Jesus had his strongest opposition from religious people. Right? You guys remember if you've read the Gospels, you know that the people that were most hostile to Jesus were a group of people called the Pharisees. Well, who were the Pharisees? Well, they were religious people. They were, they were people who were reading the Old Testament Bible and then trying to do life as a result of what they read. And Jesus interacted with them like, you guys are a problem. Your belief is a problem. There's something wrong with what you believe. Interesting quote here from Tim Keller. <clears throat> he speaks of the Pharisees, this very religious group. He says, the Pharisees tended to emphasize the external of the covenant, the covenant boundary markers of Sabbath observance, circumcision, Torah, right? External behavior. It's all about how you live. You need to live the right way. And that's what the Pharisees and religious people were emphasizing rather than a regenerated heart. Right? So there's two different things happening here, external behaviors and an internal regenerated heart. Traditional religion teaches that if we do good deeds and follow the moral rules in our external behavior, God will bless us and give us salvation. In other words, if I obey, God will love and accept me. All right, that's probably not too foreign from what most of us have felt growing up, right? We feel the sense of guilt. We feel that we should be doing certain things. We should be going to church, should do a few moral things, should stay out of the ditch behavior-wise. And if we do that, then... Then, then God will be okay with us and he'll do whatever we call good. Whatever's going to come from God that's good, that's how we get it. Keller says, religion is outside in, but the gospel is inside out. It's a very different thing than what Paul was bringing. Paul is bringing the gospel to these people and it operates inside out. It, it comes first here and then it produces a life, but it's first here. It's not a life out there to be imitated, to be adopted, to be be performed so that God then will do something in here. I do something out there, God will do something in here. That's not the gospel, but that is religion. And it's why Paul not only went after the idolaters, but he went after the religious people when he shows up in town. One more group of folks here Paul's interacting with are the philosophers, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers specifically get mentioned. And we still use these terms today, so you might get a little bit of an idea about what were these folks up to. Well, you, you may have heard Epicurean. <clears throat> you don't hear that word too much. But if somebody has Epicurean taste, right, that, that word is describing a person who's devoted to sensual pleasures and luxury, especially good food. So you hear Epicurean taste, and, and I, I want to eat certain types of food. Well, it, it comes from the Epicurean philosophy, a philosophy that's devoted to pleasure right, at some level. <clears throat> John Stott speaks of the Epicureans when he says the world was due to chance. This is what the Epicureans believe. The world is just, it's just a random event, a random concourse of atoms. And there would be no survival of death. So you die, it's just over. You just, there's no existence for you beyond Death And there's no judgment if you're an Epicurean philosopher. So human beings should pursue pleasure, especially the serene enjoyment of a life detached from pain, passion, and fear. Now, if, you're, if you're a person who traffics in arguments today that are out there, th- these guys would be the modern-day materialist. They just simply believe in the material dimensions of the universe. Everything is, is energy and matter, things that are measurable. Science can find out and define all these things for us. Right? So that's who these guys were. Interesting, they kind of have, have a little, they flirt a little bit with kind of what we call the Big Bang Theory. John Gill in his uh, commentary says, The world was not made by any deity or with any design, but came into its being and form through a fortuitous concourse of atoms of various sizes and magnitude, which met and jumbled and cemented together and so formed the world. And that the world is not governed by the providence of God. All right, so this is, this is a search for an explanation for everything. Right? These guys sit in Athens and try and think through, where do we come from? Well, somehow in that explanation, existence has to emerge. And so 
How about a scrambled set of small particles who just banged into each other? They stuck together. And next thing you know, boom, here we are. It just natural processes did all that. So there's no need for a God and there is no God. And so therefore, well, what's life all about then? Well, <clears throat> here's your boundaries. You, you just came into existence like everything else did, just a, a poof of chance, random molecules just kind of getting together. Poof, you popped out. And then over here, you're going to expire and die. And then what's after that? Well, there's no judgment. Then there's no life. There's no conscious existence. So this is you from here to here. And if, I, if that was really how you felt, and I just handed you life, this is your life from here to here. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with the Epicureans did? You're going to pursue pleasure for the limited amount of time that you've got. This is the only thing that makes sense. Avoid pain, pursue pleasure. Avoid sacrifice, avoid things that are hard. Just pursue pleasure. It's the only thing that makes sense. Hey, look, you've only got a weekend, right? That's all you got. You got this weekend. I just defined your life for you. It's a three-day weekend. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to go to school and study hard and get a good job. And then die Sunday night? (laughs) What are you going to do? You're going to find whatever pleasure you can find, however you can define it. You're going to avoid pain and you're going to pursue pleasure. Welcome to being an Epicurean. Now, the Stoics were a little bit different. You know, we use the word Stoic. Hey, this guy was very Stoic. You know, like a flat effect, non-emotional kind of a person. Because their view was there are these events that happen in life that no one's in charge of. And who knows what's going to happen next. And so it's kind of life is out of control. Que sera, sera, dude. Whatever's going to be is going to be. And so they just kind of this reserve. Don't get too excited. Don't get worked up. Just reserve yourself. And, and Paul shows up to interact with, with these guys who are thinking. Now, what's Paul's argument when he shows up? All right, a, that's a diverse audience, right? This is why the apostle says, like, yeah, the apostle Paul walked into a bar in Athens. There was a Jew, a heathen, and an atheist. All right, well, that's who he's talking to in Athens. What does he say to them when he shows up? Well, listen to what they say about what he says first. This guy shows up with foreign divinities. You're bringing to us ideas that we didn't have before you got here. Strange. A little challenging for us, a little different and new to us. All right, so culturally speaking, this is an invasive species. You understand what I'm saying? If you just leave Athens alone, the God who put on the form of human flesh took upon himself the sins of man, died and was buried and was risen again in order to reconcile men to the one God who doesn't need anybody to serve him and doesn't live in buildings was a foreign concept. Athens didn't have that as a category. That's pretty important. Know what Paul does. He preaches to a city that he calls religious. He says, I noticed on the way in here, you guys are very religious. He preaches a message to them that calls upon them to abandon their beliefs and change their lives. <clears throat> Was he right to do that? Paul, why don't, you, why don't you go find a city that's not religious? People who need whatever it is that you have to say. These people, they've already got religion, Paul. They've already got a belief system. And, and you know, <clears throat> it's diverse, but hey, you know, different people, different strokes for different folks, Paul. But you acknowledge that they're religious, but he still preaches to them. I don't know what you and I do with Christianity today. I don't know whether we feel like that's appropriate or not. Some people feel like that's not appropriate. Hey, man, that's, yeah, you got your religion. Religion's a private matter. Keep it to yourself. But when I get introduced to the first guy in human history to model Christianity for me, he doesn't do that. <clears throat> he shows up in a city that's a religious city, and he preaches a message to them that challenges what they believe and asks them to believe something different. And no, Paul's, Paul's message isn't culturally bound up. In spite of the fact that he shows up in his city with something foreign, new, and strange to them, 
he, he doesn't feel like, well, well, that's just where I'm coming from. That's just what I believe. That's just what I was taught growing up. And y'all were taught something different than what I was taught. So now I just need to respect your background and I just need to keep this over here. Notice he does not do that. He comes and he preaches to these folks. Apparently, it's not enough to be religious. Christianity, when it reaches out and touches religion, what does it do to it? What does it do with it? Well, according to Paul, it seeks to inform religion. It seeks to adjust belief and then ask for people to respond to it. That's what he does in Athens. Right? Question philosophically, is religion simply to be treated as a personal priority and preference. Right? <clears throat> I'm introducing Christianity to you today. How should Christianity as a belief system touch people in the religion category? Should it just treat religion like, well, religion is a personal preference and priority. If it's important to you, great. If it's not important to you, Hey, whatever. I mean, it's up to you, man. Uh, religion is a matter of preference. Not everybody's got the same appetite, Keith, for, the, for religious stuff, man. Not everybody wants to read the Bible. I mean, not everybody was raised the way you were raised. Well, that'd be true for Paul here. What does Paul do in the face of those issues? What's, Paul, what's Jerusalem got to do with Athens? Right? Jerusalem, this... This epicenter for monotheism, a Jewish belief system where the temple of the Old Testament sits and this God called Yahweh reveals himself to a nation of Israelites in this location. And then Paul travels way around the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea, ends up in a culture totally different, Greek culture, Roman culture. And he brings Jerusalem to Athens. And the question is, hey, Paul, what's Jerusalem got to do with Athens? Dude, we're different here. We were raised different. We were raised around different ideas. Should Christianity just stay behind the fence? Stay where you belong, Christianity. Well, Paul apparently felt like religion needs Christianity. Whatever the religious beliefs were in Athens, Paul felt like he's got to travel all that way to give them what he understood from the scriptures. That's what he believes Christianity should be doing. In spite of the fact that their background was different. See, this is what generates questions, right? It may not come from Athens, but our questions sound, as soon as I say something to you about how the need for everybody, everybody on earth needs to hear this. And the questions come, right? Wait, 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 Keith. What about, what do you mean? What about the, the, the African tribesmen who grew up under a tribal spiritism? And, and what about the, the guy in Saudi Arabia who grew up Muslim? And, and what about the, the guy in India who's a pantheist? That's what he grew up with, pantheism. All right, what about him? What about the Roman heathen worshiping Mars in Athens? What about the Greek? What about the philosophers who believed they had a religious belief system in place? What about the do-good Jewish moral people living in Athens? What about all them? Don't they fall into the same what about question? Because listen, I know that, that's, that's a challenge for us because it seems, it, it, it seems hostile to that person's belief. It seems inappropriate. Wait, wait you're saying that Christianity has got to travel from America to some remote place in Africa where they believe something totally different? Why do I say that? Well, because Christianity traveled from Jerusalem in the hands of the Apostle Paul to this remote place called Athens. And when it showed up at the shoreline, it didn't say, hey, I noticed on the way in, you guys are a very, very religious city. Good to go. I'm moving on. But some of us feel like that's what Paul should have done because they were already religious. But apparently it wasn't enough to be religious. Christianity, modeled by the Apostle Paul, reaches into their world and has something to say to them about what they believe. So this is where the 
the critical factor for identifying why does Paul do some of the stuff that he does? When you read this book, Paul, Paul's a dangerous man living a dangerous life for the sake of this message. Right, when you just read a little further, when you get into chapter 18, Paul's going to move on from Athens and he'll settle down in Corinth for a little while. And while he's there, verse 4 of chapter 18 gives away what Paul's like. He says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath <clears throat> and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Everywhere Paul went, he was in persuasion mode. Everywhere he went. Whether he was dealing with religious Jews or heathen Romans and Gentiles. He was trying to persuade them. Now, I don't know, I don't know what your idea about Christianity is. But when I, I just let the Bible speak, Christianity is trying to persuade people. It's trying to stand in front of people and say, what do you believe? Tell, tell me what you believe about this, this, and this. And then it wants to argue with you. That's why Christianity can be so awkward. It, it wants to make you adjust what you think and what you believe. Where do you get that idea? From the Apostle Paul in the first century, everywhere he went, he was in persuasion mode. And he felt it so important that he regularly put his life in jeopardy, even though he knew he might lose his life by trying to persuade people to believe things that they don't want to believe or that they find offensive. He still felt he needed to do it. That's what Christianity is. <clears throat> if Christianity is a joke with a punchline, right? Did you hear the one about the apostle, the Jew, the heathen and the atheist? Well, in the end, you're going to find out the punchline is the apostle told them all exactly the same thing. No matter who they were, they all heard the same thing. And they all needed to respond exactly the same way. That's the punchline of Christianity. It's got one message and it calls for one response to that message. No matter who you are, no matter what skin color, no matter what religious belief, no matter what part of the world you grew up in, Christianity has one message and it's calling for one response. Right now, it's all in this passage here too. So I'm going to move through this real quick. But if you ever want to... Get the nuts and bolts of Christianity. I love Greg Gilbert's book on what is the gospel. The gospel is God, man, Christ, and response. You have to be able to get all four of those right. You get them wrong, then you don't get the gospel right. So let me just look at what this passage says about God, about man, about Christ, and about responding to him, right? Real quickly, God. Who is God? Verse 24. Well, he's the God who made the world. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the source of everything. He's, he's not a needy God like a superhero. <clears throat> he's the God who's always been, and he's the God who brought everything into existence. It wasn't random that, that this creation came about. It's God made. God created. He's the source. Now, as the source, that would also mean he's the owner. He owns everything on the planet. He owns all the people that exist on the planet. So therefore, the lives that you and I think are ours and they got our name on them, they really are, they're gods because they're created by him. So this is, this is where you and I don't have the right to do with our lives just whatever we please. Because there's a God who made us. And that's what Paul's trying to invade their world and say, hey, bunch of different ideas here bunch of different ways of doing life, but there is this one God who made everything and he's over it all. Verse 29, he creates us. We don't create him. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, us, we're, we're God's creation. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We ought not to think that God has been created by the imagination of man. We ought not to think that God has been created by our imagination. This is why I asked an important question to start. What do you believe about the God that you believe in? And where did you get those ideas? And, and, and do you allow for everybody to have a different idea than yours? Because if you do, you have, you have holes in your thinking. God 
already exists before you start imagining what he's like. He already exists. Right? Listen, I've, I've never been to Wyoming. Never been there. I've heard people talk about Wyoming. I've heard people go hunting in Wyoming. I've got mental pictures of Wyoming in my head because of things that people have said. I've never been there. I can imagine Wyoming all I want. I can imagine it's a desert. I can imagine it's an island in the Pacific. I can imagine all kinds of things. But see, Wyoming already exists. Wyoming is what it is. I cannot create Wyoming. I can only discover Wyoming. I cannot create God. I can only discover him. I can't make him Starbucks Jesus or whatever other Jesus I want to make him. Yeah, but see, I, you know, I just love the whales. You know, I mean, just for me, I just love the whales. Certainly Jesus loves the whales. And so I want to go to the first church of whale lovers because, man, that's just, they matter to me a lot. And I, I know that God to matter to God. I know God is concerned about the whales above all things. I just know that. I know he's concerned about other things, but the whales, I know he is. You, you just imagine what God is like based on what you're like. I know there's no way. I know there is no way that, that God could judge people and find them guilty and send people to hell. I thought there's no way he could do that. I couldn't do that. So therefore he can't do that. If I had that kind of power over people, I would just love them. I would just love, you know, listen, you, you just, you just took on a job that's beyond your pay scale. If I were managing the universe and all the good and evil that are in it and why things exist, I would do, I, don't, I haven't even seen the blueprints. I don't even know how big this thing is. I don't, I don't need to go there. But I don't get to imagine a God. I get to discover a God. He is a certain way. And he's revealed in this passage. Verse 27 says, he's near to us and desires to be sought by us. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. And he's actually not far from each one of us. Now, we sometimes feel like God is on another planet. God is nowhere near the way things are going. There's no way God could be around. I don't feel like God's around. Okay, but according to what God says about himself, he's near to all of us. And if we would seek him, the Bible says we will find him if we search for him with all of our hearts. So I've got to decide, is God so distant because God's so distant? Or is God so distant because I ain't really looking? I mean, I don't like that option. I much prefer the option where I'm doing, I'm doing stuff right and God's the one messing up here. He's a big guy. He can take it on the chin. Well, might it be that God's a foreigner to me because I can name all the players on the saints team, but I can't even tell you the books of the Bible, but God is so far away. If God really cared, oh, come on, suck it up. The truth is you don't care. You don't care about getting to know that God. You won't crawl across glass and break your life patterns and do everything within your power to come to know this God. Most of us won't give God the time of day. And then we have the, the gall to turn around and accuse God. But according to God, God says, I'm not far from any of you. And if you could grope along the wall like a blind man, you could find me. So if you're not finding me, it's because you're not looking. Well, that's not how, well, that's what the Bible says, though, right? This is how Paul presented God. Well, who's man in this passage? Well, he's, he's wired for worship, right? This is a religious place, verse 23. Paul comes into town. He says, as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, you are worshiping people. You build stuff to worship. You hang around and talk and think because you worship ideas. Whether you are an idol worshiper, an idea worshiper, or a goody two-shoes worshiper, whatever it is that you are, you're built for worship. So listen, one of the reasons why you and I will never scratch the itch that exists inside of us is because we don't come to grips with we're built to worship things. Now, we're actually built to worship one thing. 
And when we don't worship the one thing, we create idols and we worship them in its place. And that's why it's so offensive to God. Because we're, we're wired to worship. In this passage, we learn that man is created by God and in the image of God. Right? We, we bear a unique impression of the life of God upon us. Right? If you, if you want to know why, I don't know why we should treat people a certain way. This is why. You can come up with all kinds of laws. And, and quite honestly, if you're, if you're an evolutionist who's got us all just random molecules, big bang, poof, we grew out of slime and here we are. Now we're all trying to get along with each other. Uh, I, don't fi- I don't find, and if you'll think about it, I don't think you possibly could find any reason for me to treat you with any more dignity than I treat the, the, the plants that grow in my yard, the dog that walks through my yard. Why, should, why do you get special privilege? You're just an evolved bunch of cellular organism, just like the tree, just like my pets. And, and you got this lifespan, it's about this long. I don't right? come up with morality on how to treat you. Just, this is why it's very easy to create abortion laws. Because I'm an Epicurean and, I, and I'm here to avoid pain and, and dis, discomfort and difficulty. And having a child and becoming responsible for that child and caring for that child all of its life, that, that does not sound like a pleasure for me. And so I just abort the child. And, and it's kind of easy to do that when that child is just part of an evolved system of cellular activity on the planet. You know, there's trees, we cut them down. We eat chickens. We take the lives of babies. It all makes sense until you believe that man is made in the image of God and he gets his dignity from that image. And so now that child has dignity. It's to be respected. It's life that God uniquely has set apart as distinct from everything else that he created. And so it matters what we believe about man. This passage teaches us that man is accountable to God. Right? Verse 27 says that they, sh- they should seek God. God has done some things so that we would seek him. And then in verse 30, it says the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, now he commands people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right? Man is accountable to God. Unlike the Epicurean, you're not just going to die and go off into oblivion. According to this passage, you're going to die and then face the God who created you. And he has appointed a day in which that's going to happen for every one of us. And not only that, here's the good news in that. That sounds like it'd be a tough gig apart from the rest of that passage. God has appointed a man. Well, who is that appointed man? Well, he's the reason why Paul's in Athens to tell you about this man, this one who is appointed by God throughout all the Old Testament, one illustration and picture after another about the Lamb of God, the the God coming to take away the sins of humanity so that when you stood on that day in judgment, you could be forgiven of your sins. That's why Paul had to show up and tell them this because there's an appointed man and that's who is this Christ. Well, he's the appointed Man, he's the appointed man who is going to, listen carefully, judge the world in righteousness. That's a very, very helpful word. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. This is why I say this is a helpful word. Because most of us use a different word. When we think we're going to stand before God and we think we might be okay, we use the word good. Are you a good person? Well, you know, where do you go with that? If I ask you if you're a good person or whether you realize it or not, I think what you do with it is you relativize the word. You know, I'm, I'm on the better end of the curve. Not mad, you know, I'm humble. I'm not real far on the better end of the curve, but you know, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm, I'm not as bad as, right? So I get into that category. It's a relative word. Okay. Are you a good person? Well, uh, relatively speaking, are you righteous? 
That's a different question now, isn't it? Are, are you without blame? Righteous, righteousness has no blame in it. It has no fault in it ever. It's righteous. Are you righteous? Well, that's a problem now, isn't it? Okay, let me just share with you this illustration before I close here. If you, if you, if you stand before God in heaven... The currency of heaven is righteousness. It's not human goodness. They don't take human goodness in heaven. Or you can travel down to Mexico, maybe you're from Mexico, and you got a pocket full of pesos. And you show up and you walk in Walgreens. You walk up to the counter to buy whatever you're buying. You pull out a bit. I mean, you got a lot of pesos. You got a wad. You start doling those babies out, slap them down on the counter. Guess what? We don't take pesos here, buddy. You're in America. We take dollars. Well, all I got is pesos. Well, then you ain't buying nothing. <laughs> when you get to heaven, they don't take human goodness. They take righteousness. That's it. You gain access to the presence of God on the basis of righteousness only. Where do you get that? Well, it's doled out by one person. There is one person who controls all the righteousness in the universe and he gives it to whoever he will. Romans chapter three, verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? Apart from the law being keeping good rules, doing good things, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why I can ask you, are you blameless? No, not a one of us. All have sinned and fall short. Well, then you are unrighteous. You are bankrupt in the righteousness category. You may have a pocket full of pesos, but you can't buy a thing with it because you got no righteousness. And where do you get that righteousness? Well, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Why did Paul go to Athens? Eric, you can come back up here. Why Paul go to Athens? Paul goes to Athens because the Athenians need righteousness. That's why he goes to Athens. They had goodness. A lot of them did. There were some decent people there. Some people caring for others. Maybe some philanthropist kind of activity going on. But Paul goes to Athens because the people in Athens need righteousness. They just don't need to be good religious people. They need righteousness. Well, how did they get righteousness? He tells them here, God has appointed a day for you to receive the one who's appointed, the one who disperses the righteousness. You need to repent and you need to believe. And at the end of the message here, some did. Some listened to this. They lived in Athens, different culture, different background. But what they listened to Paul say, they believed in their heart. They repented, turned to God and believed in their heart. Can I just tell you that word repentance is a big word. But I'm going I'm to ask you today to consider whether, whether you want to repent. Because that's what the Bible calls on us to do, to come into a relationship with God. Well, re- repent of what? Well, the number one thing to repent of is, is you trying to achieve your own righteousness rather than coming to the giver of righteousness and getting it from him. Listen, God put his son on a cross, crucified him. And raised him up from the dead so that he could be the dispenser of righteousness and give it to everybody as a gift if you would just come in faith and receive it. The number one thing you have to repent of is trying to achieve it on your own. Which is what the Athenians would do. Which is why the Apostle Paul needed to go to them. Listen, this morning I want to do two things. Do you get a sense of what Christianity is like in the hands of the Apostle Paul. It sends people to Athens. And listen, I hope it sends you from here. 
I hope if you're a Christian and you know you're a Christian, you're you're not trying to gain rightness before God through your own efforts. You've received righteousness as a gift from God. That you realize God is calling you to Athens. God's calling you to go into the lives of the atheist and the Jew and the heathen who's religious in their own way, but they're not righteous in the way that God accepts. They're seeking to find their way to God some other way than his. But this morning, maybe you're not sure about your own relationship with God. Well, you can be like this man Dionysius and Damaris at the end of the story there. By the time we get to the end of this passage, they have listened, they have believed, and they have become righteous in the eyes of God. Let's let's stand up together. So I just want to ask everybody just to bow your heads for a moment. Something unique about God's gathering together here with us. And that's what he says he does. He says he gathers with us. He says, where two or more of you are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of you. So what Paul said about God is not far from us. Well, that's true right here this morning. God is not far from us. I want you to sense the nearness of God. I want you to feel for him in your own heart. What's... What's God saying to you this morning? God speaks into our heart. He gives us a sense of things he wants us to hear in our heart. What are you sensing from God this morning? Listen, if you're here this morning, I just ask you the question, are, are you right with God this morning? Is your life right with God? If you think you are, I'm going to ask you this question. Well, why? Why do you think you are? Think about that. Is it because of the way in which you've been living lately? Is it because overall you feel like you've lived a pretty decent life? Maybe you've included religious activity in that life. And so this morning you feel like you're okay. You think you're okay. I hope you've heard something different than that this morning. None of us are okay because we've led a decent life. And none of us are okay because we've been religious. The people in Athens were both of those. They were not okay until they repented And they put their faith and their belief in the Jesus Christ, the one appointed by God to give righteousness to them as a gift. They weren't okay until they did that. And you're not okay until you do that either. But you can do that right now. You can do that in your heart right now. To repent means to agree with God and say, God, I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm doing this the wrong way. And I'm going to, I'm going to turn around, turn away from the way I'm doing it. And I'm going to turn to your way. That's what repentance is. If you're here this morning and and that's in your heart right now, you're saying, yeah, I, I do want to do that. I, I want to repent. Well, tell God that you don't need to tell me that. Tell God that right now, just with your head bowed, talk to God. He's not far from each of us. Tell him that Lord, I know I need to turn to you and I, been doing my life my own way. But this morning, God, I am. I'm turning to you. Repentance and then is followed by belief. It's believing in the one that God appointed. Jesus Christ was God's son come in the flesh to take our sin upon himself, to take our punishment in our place, And then to give to us his righteousness, his rightness, his blameless life. To give that to us as a gift. You want that? Do you believe he did that for you? And you want that? Well, tell him that right now. Just tell him. Lord, I repent and I believe. I 
believe in Jesus Christ. And I ask for you to forgive me of my sins. Lord, this morning, would you welcome me into your family? Or would you come into my life? Would you give to me the righteousness that I need? Would you make me right with you this morning? Not, Lord, I understand, not because of something I've done, but because of what Jesus did in my place. Lord, this morning I, I turn to you. I put my faith in you and my hope in you. Listen, if you just did that, then you're numbered amongst folks like Dionysius and Damaris, people who did exactly the same thing in 50 AD in Athens, Greece. See, this message, it never dies. It's the same message. It's one message for every person with the same response for every person. You just did the same thing these Greeks did back in 50 AD. And God has done the same thing in your life as he did in the Apostle Paul because he did the same thing as well. He turned from his religion and he turned to God and received the spirit of God and God's righteousness and God changed this whole world. Listen, if you just prayed that just now, well, then God has done that in you and started this new life in you. Here's what, here I want to greatly encourage you. If, if you just prayed that prayer this morning, would you, would you think about doing this? Because, boy, you just opened up an adventure in your life. Think about doing this. Tuesday night here, we start something we call the Alpha Program. You saw something about it earlier. It, it really just introduces you to the Christian faith. And it'll help you take your steps into all that God has for you. Would you think about coming back Tuesday night? Come check out the first night and just see if this is something you think God might use in your life in the days ahead. I, I think you'll really enjoy it. I think it'll help you grow. I think it'll make what you did this morning all the more meaningful in your life. All right. Well, guys, bless you. Thank you for being here. Guests, thank you for being here. New folks, lunch upstairs. Looking forward to getting a chance to connect with you.